Tom is a good guesser. Or did Mother tell him what to wear? The Outline, World Dispatch. It's Thursday, January 18th, 2018. I'm Adrian Jeffries. Today on The Dispatch, we follow the story of two women in U.S. detention centers and what they faced behind closed doors. Here's The Dispatch. Power. Laura is a 23-year-old immigrant from El Salvador who I've been talking to over the past month. Gabby Del Valle is a writer here at The Outline. She had a really difficult upbringing. She's from a small town and her family didn't have a lot of money. Her uncle beat her because she was gay and her family members didn't approve of her. And at one point she decided to run away. She fled to Honduras, but her family managed to catch up to her and brought her back to El Salvador. And what was it like for her once she got back to El Salvador? She, things were got a little bit better at first. She went to school, she got a job, but eventually at her job, people began harassing her like verbally and physically because she's gay. And one day a gang just showed up to her home and was like, if you don't leave, we're gonna kill you. And she told me that they beat her and basically threatened her life and was like, you need to leave right now. So she left the next day. And she came to the United States this time. It was roughly 1,600 miles. She said it was really hard. She didn't, like, have a plan, really. She just left. She said it took her 20 days. She didn't have a lot of money. So she basically went from city to city, like, knocking on doors and asking people, like, do you have any money? Do you have any food? Like, I'm trying to leave. She told me that she'd have to sleep outside in the fields just because, like, there weren't really shelters for her. And she would, like, dig out of the trash if she couldn't get money for food. She said it was one of the most difficult experiences of her life. Okay, so she gets to the U.S., and then what happens? She encountered a Border Patrol agent. So this is right after she crosses the border. She gets across, and she basically gets picked up immediately? Yeah. But she told him that she was afraid of returning, which classifies her as an asylum seeker, which means that she can't be immediately deported. She tells the border agent that she's afraid of returning home, and she starts to go through the asylum process. So what is the next step for her? So you have to be interviewed by somebody from USCIS, which is U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and they determine if you have a, quote, credible fear of returning to your country, which means if you really do fear persecution in your country. Laura was sent to the Tidon Hutto Residential Center in Taylor, Texas, which is an immigrant detention facility that houses anywhere between 461 and 512 immigrant women. Most of them are also asylum seekers. So Tidon Hutto, I feel like I've read this name a lot in stories about immigration. What is this place exactly and who runs it? It's an immigration detention facility in Texas that only houses immigrant women, and it's owned by... CoreCivic, previously known as the Corrections Corporation of America. We are CoreCivic. We are innovating and transforming while remaining true to everything we've built. 
And the conditions there were so bad that it prompted an ACLU lawsuit because, like, the children who were detained there weren't getting enough time to go outside. They were forced to wear prison uniforms. They they were being treated like they were in prison, even though Hutto and other immigrant detention facilities are supposed to be for, quote, civil detention, which means that the people in them haven't technically committed a crime. But the prison is still being run by this private contracted company, CoreCivic. So what, how does the government's contract with them work? Is there a specific number of people who are supposed to be detained? The Department of Homeland Security has what's called an intergovernmental service agreement with Williamson County, which is where the facility is. And that's for the, quote, or the residential care of alien females. And then Williamson County subcontracted that to CoreCivic and for every woman who is detained there, Corsiv, as of 2010, for every woman who's detained at Hutto, Corsiv gets paid $95.20 each day. And a minimum of 461 women must be detained there every day. So there's an incentive for Corsivic to keep the place full. Yeah, and there's also an incentive for ICE to keep not only Hutto, but detention centers across the country full. And there's even a mandatory minimum detention quota, which is 34,000 people across the country. Back to Laura. What was her experience like once she got to Hutto? She's described it as hell. She told me that when she arrived there, the guards were, they were racist, they were mean, they were just not helpful. And there was one woman, she said, who worked in the prison and was a little bit nicer than the other ones. And she thought that Maybe they could be friends. She told her her whole life story. And then one day the guard was like, do you like women? And Laura was like, yeah, that's why I'm here. That's why I left. And then the, the guard said, great. And that's when she started groping her. She was like, please stop this. And the guard was like, no, nobody's going to believe you. Like, I work here. Did Laura tell anybody about this? Not for a while. Um, the She said that the abuse started in May, and she didn't find the courage to tell anybody until the fall of that year. But she did tell me that there were two other guards who witnessed her being groped at least once. So there were people who knew. In the fall, she was getting these visits from Grassroots Leadership, which is this immigrant advocacy organization in Austin that has a visitation program at Hutto. And she said that she was so depressed at first that she couldn't talk about it. But eventually she realized, like, oh, these people really care about me. Like, maybe I should tell them what's going on. And she just told them everything. Were they able to help her? Yeah, they were um, still kind of formulating, like, what they wanted to do. She wasn't really sure if she wanted to go public with what was happening to her or if she just wanted to give up her asylum case and go home because she said that she just couldn't take it anymore. But, like, while they were figuring that out, CoreCivic received an anonymous call from somebody that said, like, we know a detainee is being abused, Laura is being abused. So someone from the detention center received an anonymous phone call reporting this abuse of Laura. Yeah. And it wasn't from this advocacy group. It wasn't from the advocacy group. And they think that it might have been one of the two guards that witnessed the groping happening. Now that the detention center is aware that this abuse is going on, what do they do? The day they received the call, 
two officials interviewed Laura, or they attempted to, and she didn't agree because she wasn't comfortable until they threatened her with solitary confinement. And then once they like told her that they were going to put her in isolation, she told them everything, and she said that at, they kind of just like made it seem like like she wanted it or like it was a consensual relationship. And after a lot of pushing from grassroots leadership, the um, Williamson County Sheriff's Office got involved. And two people from ICE and two people from the sheriff's office interviewed her. And again, they told me it was the same thing, like kind of victim blaming, kind of like, like, are you sure that that's really what happened? Like, are you just saying this so you don't get deported? And there was this whole like week long period where the sheriff's office was like, this is not our jurisdiction. It's the police department. And the police department was like, it's not our jurisdiction. It's the sheriff's office. And they kind of just kept passing it off to each other. And then the FBI got involved. Una inmigrante salvadoreña denunciando ser víctima de abuso sexual. La carta lee, buscaba o aprovechaba cada momento que podía para tocar mis pechos o mis piernas. Ella sabía dónde y cuándo lo hacía. La víctima, Laura Monterrosa, de 23 años, nos dice que no es la única víctima y que ella por mucho tiempo permaneció en silencio a causa de amenazas por parte de su agresora. So there is this process that has been started by this anonymous tip that maybe came in from another guard. And then Laura gets the courage to to say what happened in her own words. Yeah, she wrote a letter before she had decided whether she wanted to use her name or not. And Grassroots published it a couple days after CoreCivic received the anonymous call. And the letter basically just described the ongoing abuse that she was experiencing. Do you have the letter? Yeah, they published it on their website. And they also uploaded an English translation because she wrote it in Spanish. She began to tell me she liked me and that whatever she liked belonged to her. And every time her words became more absurd as she told me that she loved me and she wasn't going to let anyone humiliate her, given that I didn't want a relationship and she was only focused on me. She always demanded to know what I did with other women and why I was with them. Uh, I got tired of all of this and asked her no more because I was very scared, but she didn't care and I told her I was going to talk to the captain. But she laughed with a sarcastic laugh and said, do you think he will believe you? Please, they never will. This is Gabby. How are you? Hello. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me on such short notice. Anytime. I, I just want to share my story with you. Who is she? Miranda came to the U.S. from Mexico in 2000. She is transgender, and she told me that she fled because she was really sick of being mistreated in her country, and she came here to build a better life for herself. It was a very difficult journey, but when you're tired of walking, the trade they give us, it's nothing compared to what you want to, what you want to face it. It's just, you just want to be free. Leave it, leave everything behind. What did she do when she got to the U.S.? She moved to Long Island and she started working as a line cook. She learned English. She didn't really get into any trouble. She said that her life here was really good. And then one day in 2015, she got a DUI. And that basically put her on ICE's radar. Well, one day, the um, uh, immigration come to pick me to my house. When a person in New York is arrested, their fingerprints get sent to the State Department of Corrections, and ICE has access to all of that. So even if you don't get charged with anything, if you are picked up by police for any reason and you are undocumented or have a green card, ICE can find you. 
And in 2016, I showed up at Miranda's home and arrested her on immigration charges, even though the DUI case had already been completely handled. So where did Miranda end up after that? Uh, First, she got sent to the Orange County Correctional Facility in New York State. And her attorney at the time filed an asylum claim for her, basically saying that she was a gay person from Mexico and feared persecution. And a judge found that her asylum case was not valid because there are protections for gay people in Mexico. While all this is happening around whether or not she gets asylum, she also is in detention. Yes. She got sent to a male detention facility where it wasn't just the guards that treat people bad there. It was also the other detainees. My, the sexual harassment started since the first day I stepped in the jail. Discriminate your face, you're a faggot. Discriminate your face, uh, you're uh, garbage. Oh, my God. She said that she started being sexually harassed basically the day she walked into the detention center. And one day while she was taking a shower, another detainee tried, like, started beating her up. And thankfully, she said there was another person who was in the shower at the time who saved her. And then the next day, the same man who tried to beat her up walked into her bedroom while she was sleeping and rubbed semen on her face. And once she reported that, she was placed into solitary confinement for eight months for her protection. In solitary, I was like, um, I don't remember, but maybe like eight months. Eight months? Pretty much. Yeah. Everything dark. They don't, they don't let you go out. They only give you 20 minutes to go out every day. The rest of the day, you have to be in the, you have to be in the cell without lights. Oh my God, it was, it was terrible. Did she have the opportunity to change detention centers at any time? There was only one option for her, which was the, quote, trans pod at a detention center in California. And that's basically like a separate facility at the Santa Ana City Jail in California for transgender immigrant detainees. But that would have meant that she would be leaving her lawyer. She would be leaving all of the people who were supporting her back on Long Island and she that was basically her only option and she and her lawyer decided that was unacceptable what is miranda's status now she is still waiting for her asylum case to be processed and it will be adjudicated in 2019. i used to be a very happy person and this is what i want have my life my life back because they take everything away and for the future The only thing I want is just to be free. That's all I want. So what happened to Laura? Well, Laura was... Laura says that she was retaliated against in detention by the guards, and she became so depressed and so anxious that she stopped leaving her room. Because the guard who assaulted her never stopped working at the facility, they temporarily relocated her to the camera room so she wouldn't be in contact with other detainees while Korsavik was investigating. And then once that investigation was closed, she was back to being among the general population. And 
Laura was so anxious and so afraid of seeing her that she didn't leave her room. She told me that she stopped eating. And, um, and somehow um, the medical staff in the facility left a bottle of pills in her room. Just And she took 51 prescription pain pills and overdosed in an attempt to kill herself. But she survived and was placed in solitary confinement afterwards for, quote, her mental health. And now she is still waiting for the FBI's investigation to be concluded and was finally told basically the day after her suicide attempt that the guard who assaulted her is no longer going to be working in that building. Did Laura have any words for other people who are in her position? Uh, the first time I spoke to her, I basically asked her, like, a lot of people don't know what ICE detention is like, and is there anything that you want people to know? And she said, I want them to know that we suffer here, and I want all the other women who are detained, and men too, to know that no one, absolutely no one, has the right to your body. No one has the right to humiliate you, and no one can take away your rights. And regarding the government's stance on immigrants and asylum seekers, she said, we aren't criminals, we're just immigrants. Gabby Del Valle is a writer here at The Outline. Gabby, thank you so much. Thanks, Adrian. We have other stories on The Outline today. Katie Drummond thinks these accidental missile alerts aren't accidents after all. And Stephen Harrison found where all the people obsessed with law school are meeting up. You can find links to those along with today's story in the show notes or at theoutline.com. Today we featured a story by Gabby Del Valle. We're produced by James T. Green. Get new episodes every morning, Monday through Thursday, by subscribing on Apple Podcasts. Google Play, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. That's it for The Dispatch. I'm Adrian Jeffries. Thanks for listening. We'll be back Monday with more stories. <laughs>